Welcome to church. I'm Josh, one of the pastors. And so since this is Thanksgiving week, and this week when you sit together with family and friends, and somebody's going to say, hey, let's go around the table and let's all say something we're thankful for. Now, some of you, depending on your personality, you love this moment. Like, this is like so fun for you. You're just like, I can't wait to hear. I hope they're going to say my name. Like, I hope, like, I can't wait to hear what everyone's going to have to say. They're going to say thanks for all this food. They're going to say, you know, and some of you, I mean, you hate this moment. Like, if you're a teenager, like, you really just hate this moment. Because you're just sitting there thinking, you're like, what do I have to say to get out of this moment? And the reality is, is that we're not actually very good at being thankful. We're not actually very good at, at celebrating. We're not actually very good at, at, at thanking God many times. Like, we're really good at critiquing things. We're really good you know, pointing out things that are wrong. Right? Recently, we did an exercise with our staff at Elders to evaluate some different things about what, what is right, wrong, missing, and confusing in our church. And um, everybody was like on the edge of their seats waiting to get to what's wrong. Like we, we just like, we're so ready to like fix things because we like that. It's just easier. But as we're entering Thanksgiving and as we're starting our Advent series today, there's a lot of things for our church to be thankful for. There's a lot of things for us personally to be thankful for. If you were here last week, as we wrapped up our series, The Life-Giving Church, we celebrated um, eight baptisms last week, um, which is just an incredibly exciting thing um, to see. Yeah, we can clap for that and cheer for them. You know, as Dana mentioned, you know, having 85 angels taken last week was incredible with our angel tree. You know, and this year, as we, as we kick off our Christmas offering um, today, our, our goal of of setting aside $20,000 to give away and bless other people. And we're going to be sharing some more about that over the coming weeks. And as you walked in today, maybe, uh, maybe you noticed that the, the carpet from 1984 is no longer here, <laughs> which is a huge win. Yes, we can clap for that. <laughs> and, and here's the amazing thing. And, and some of you maybe didn't even notice this too, like it, all the different things with uh, on the walls, downstairs, as we're updating the kids' space. Um, the parking lot, there, there's not tripping hazards in the parking lot anymore from its level. <laughs> um, and being able to, to replace our roof this year, all that has come um, because of the generosity of our church. All that will be done um, is through the generosity of our church and people giving large and small to our building funds so that we can have a building that when people walk in, our, our building communicates something. Every single time, our building um, communicates something. Whether or not things are weeded, whether or not flowers look nice, whether or not greeters smile, whether or not the, the carpet looks well, that all communicates something to people. And what we give and what we say all communicates. But what do we do? And maybe you're sitting here thinking, that all sounds nice, Josh but I really don't have anything to be thankful for. And my life really isn't that great. And I'm going to sit across the table this week and I'm going to see empty chairs with people that aren't there anymore. I'm going to see empty chairs of relationships that are broken. That there's going to be people who aren't going to come home this week for Thanksgiving because they chose not to or because they're no longer with us. Like, it's easy to try to put a positive spin on Thanksgiving, but for many of us, as we enter into the Advent Christmas season, 
It's actually a season that's very, very difficult for us to navigate. And all you have to do is open up social media and, and you just get this sickening feeling of our world, just the chaos of our world. I mean, and, and the question is, like, as we scroll through social media, maybe as you sit in school this week or you sit at work and you think, what do I do when the world just is falling apart? Like, what do I do when my family is falling apart? What do I do when everything just feels like it's gone crazy? Like, what do I do when my kids don't act the way I hoped that they were going to act, when my marriage isn't how I thought it was going to be, when my career isn't how I thought it was going to be? And what do I do when the, when the world just feels like it is on a tailspin and we feel powerless? See, and as we get closer to Christmas, one of the reasons that I think so many of us find the Christmas Advent season is our favorite season of the year is because of the different emotions connected with Christmas and Advent. We love the celebrations. That's, the, that's part of the Christmas Advent season, the celebrations, the joy, the love, the hope, the peace. But then part of the Christmas Advent season is also the waiting and the longing and the, the groaning in pain. See, Advent, if you don't have a church background or maybe you grew up in church that didn't really celebrate Advent, Advent is this season that actually starts next Sunday that leads up to Christmas. And it is the season in the church calendar where we stop and remind ourselves that we are waiting, that life is not as it's supposed to be. See, one of the reasons that Advent and Christmas so resonates deeply within us is because it is a reminder that your marriage, your family, your career, your life, your health is not exactly as it's supposed to be. That waiting is part of life. The word Advent means the coming. And when we think about Advent, when we think about Christmas, we think about the coming of Jesus the first time, the birth of Jesus, right? Most of the Christmas series that we've ever done here at our church, most of the Advent readings are all about the birth of Jesus. But this year, we're gonna look at the other the return of Jesus. See, Advent is not just about the first time that Jesus came, but it is about the fact that Jesus will one day return. And this is a question a lot of people have. A lot of people love to debate. I remember when I was in Bible college and seminary, we love to debate how's the, how the world's gonna end, what's gonna happen, which movie is correct, you know, which end of the world movie is correct. Everybody, depending on your church background, maybe you grew up in a church that had like timelines. I remember having uh, the church that I grew up in had like a poster. It filled an entire wall of the timeline of the end of the world. It had on there who the potential antichrists were. It had on there what I needed to be watching out for. And the end of the world was like a threat, okay? In the church, I remember this. When, when I was in middle school, I grew up in a church very conservative that, that thought mo the movie theater was just like Satan's playground. I don't know if you grew up in a church like this, maybe. Some of you right now are just rolling your eyes, thinking, how old is Josh? I'm not that old, okay? But I remember, no lie, I remember a middle school small group leader looking at me and going, Josh, do you wanna be in the movie theater when Jesus returns? And I remember, do you know what, I looked at him, I was in maybe seventh or eighth grade, I looked at him and I was like, well, that depends, is the movie over? <laughs> but, Advent is about that Jesus was born and came into a broken world. And Advent 
is about Jesus will one day return and we hold on to that hope. And here's why Advent resonates so deeply within us. I, I, there's a book written by Pastor Fleming Rutledge um, uh, on Advent, and it's one of my favorite books on Advent. And she says, this is why it resonates with us. The disappointment, brokenness, and suffering and pain that ca characterizes life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. And in that tension, the church lives its life. See, that Advent is this reminder that life is not the way it's supposed to be. As we enter into this Advent season, it is a reminder that we are always waiting, that the people of God are waiting. Leading in the Old Testament up until the birth of Jesus, the people of God waited 400 years through silence. We, since Jesus has returned to heaven, have waited with millions of followers of Jesus for him to return. And when Jesus returns, what we're told in Revelation is that he will wipe away every tear. He will remove all sorrow, all pain, all betrayal, all war, all death. And that's what we wait for. Every morning when you wake up and your body aches and, and you creak out of bed, you're reminding that you are waiting when there are broken relationships, you are reminded that you are waiting. Fleming Rutledge goes on. She says, Advent most closely mirrors the daily lives of Christians and the church. It asks the most important ethical questions, presents the most accurate picture of the human condition, and above all, orients us to the future of the God who will come again. See, whenever a, a tragedy happens in our world, one of the things that I see consistently on social media is somebody using the refrain of come Lord Jesus come come again and what this is is it's this reminder that this isn't that's not supposed to happen and we're just waiting see advent is not just about the birth of Jesus it is but it's also about the return of Jesus and so in this advent season we're going to do something a little bit different we're going to look at the return of the king. We're gonna look at the fact that the truth and the promise that Jesus will return, how that gives us hope today. How, it, how we navigate the pain that we experience. How we navigate just the hurt, the betrayal, the physical, the emotional pain, the mental pain that we walk through. How does the Bible give us hope that when Jesus returns, we can get through that? And if you remember back, if you were here in August, we went through uh, the book of Daniel. We went through the first half of Daniel, chapters one through six. And so to guide us in this Advent season, we're gonna go back to Daniel and we're gonna finish it in chapters seven through 12. Now, Daniel, just to give you a little bit of background, Daniel is a story that if you grew up in church, you know some of the stories, the stories of the fiery furnace, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. But in Daniel, the book of Daniel, the, the first six chapters are kind of an, a, a biography of Daniel. It's Daniel telling his story of life. And Daniel, as a teenager, lived in Judah. He was part of the religious crowd in the nation of Judah, one of the people of God, an Israelite. And they are conquered by Babylon, the superpower of the day. Now, Daniel at this point is a teenager. And he's taken away from his home. He's taken away from his family to Babylon to taught all the things about the Babylonian empire. He's taught everything that he needs to know to move up. And he one day becomes the third most powerful person in the kingdom of Babylon. And we're told that he lives well into his 80s. 
but he never returns home. He never gets the life that he expected. In exile, he, he's made into a eunuch, so he never has a family. He never marries. All of the dreams that he had for his life as a teenager are just gone and wiped out. Now, I want you to think for a moment. If you're a teenager, what, what dreams do you have for your life? And I want you to imagine almost none of them coming true. Now, if you're an adult, I want you to think back to some of your, your dreams as a teenager. Do you remember some of those? How many of them came true? Are there any dreams that you still hold on to and think, I really wish that would have happened? I really wish I would have made this decision, or I really wish that person would have made that decision, or, oh, what if? And if that's you, that's exactly where Daniel lives. It's exactly the life Daniel has experienced. Daniel has experienced this life of what if, if only. And in chapter 7, the book of Daniel shifts from the story of Daniel to how God answers Daniel's deepest questions. And how God answers our questions of what if and, and, and if only and how come and how long and why is it like this. And the book of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, is what is known as apocalyptic literature. Now, this is important. Every book of the Bible is written to a different group of people. You know, as we've talked through the Gospels, how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all written by different people, two different groups of people. Matthew was written more to a Jewish audience. Luke was written more to a Greek-Roman audience. And the way, the reason that's important is because it changes the things that they talked about. It, it, it really influences the evidence that they used, things that the, the Spirit inspired them to write. You have books in the Old Testament, like the Psalms, that are, that are poetry and worship, filled with prayers. Proverbs is just filled with, with just great one-liners and, and just amazing wisdom, things that fit really great on a fortune cookie, you know? Well, you read those things differently than other genres. You don't read through Proverbs the way you read through the book of Romans and seeing this long, just theological argument about, about grace and law. In the same way, the second half of Daniel and the book of Revelation are known as apocalyptic literature. Now, this is important because the, the genre influences how we read it. Now, when you read through the second half of Daniel, and as we go through this series and as you read through books like Revelation, apocalyptic literature carries this idea. I mean, think about it. What's apocalyptic? It's like impending doom. It's like the end is coming. But what, the, what apocalyptic literature does, what Daniel and Revelation does, is it actually pulls the curtain back for us to see behind it, to see what God is doing, to get a glimpse of what God is trying to bring forth. And here's a, a couple of things that are important. One, apocalyptic literature, Daniel and Revelation, are very image-rich. They use images to communicate things. You're going to hear things over these next several weeks about beasts and horns and flames, and, and all these different things mean something. But many times when we read through Daniel and Revelation, we treat them differently than other books of the Bible in this way. When you read through James or Matthew, we'll, we'll go, okay, what was, what was Matthew trying to communicate to the first people in the first century? And then how do we apply that to our context? Now, when we read Daniel and Revelation, here's what we often do. We often just skip the people 
that Daniel lived with, we just go, well, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us as Americans? We begin to look, we try to find timelines. And, and, and like I mentioned earlier, if you grew up in a church like that, you, maybe you're hoping that we'll get into timelines. We're not. So uh, we're not gonna get into timelines, but we are gonna talk about what all these things mean because they mean something. Now here's, here's, what, we, here's what we're going to do. And here's why we're gonna hold it loosely. Because if you ask five different experts on apocalyptic literature on Daniel and Revelation, you will get five different ways of reading Daniel and Revelation. You will, you will experience people, you will hear Christians talk about Daniel and Revelation as being 100% literal, that everything in it is literal. They're gonna be literal people and literal things. There'll be literal four beasts with iron teeth. And then you'll have people who will say it's just totally figurative. You'll also have people who see Daniel and Revelation as completely historical, that everything in Daniel and Revelation has already happened. None of it is future-oriented. You'll also have people who think it's 100% future-oriented, and we're waiting for it to all unfold. And then you have people who are like, maybe it's both. Maybe it's like future and past. But the point is, we want to hold it loosely. Here's a couple other reasons. The return of Jesus is the thing that has been debated probably more than anything else when it comes to Daniel and Revelation. The timeline, how we know it's gonna happen, uh, what, what order of things is debated by all kinds of people. And every single, every single stance within Christianity has verses attached to it. So you need to understand that. Everybody, everybody has verses to it. Now here's why I think we need to hold it loosely in the order of things. In 2009, a Christian talk radio host named Harold Camping predicted that the world would end. He based his prediction on a formula from Old and New Testament events, which led him to predict that on May 21st, 2011, the world would end. Now, this radio station spent millions of dollars canvassing America about the impending doom. Okay, they made booklets in 75 different languages. They had thousands of billboards around the country to get the message out. People quit their jobs, People rushed into marriages. People ran up credit card debt because you're not going to be here to pay it off. People gave away all their possessions. In one tragic situation, a mother tried to kill her two daughters so that they would not see the impending events. Thankfully, they they survived. A handful of people killed themselves before the anticipated date. And guess what? May 21st came and went. Now, here's here's the incredible thing, the absolutely incredible thing about this. This was not actually Harold Camping's first prediction, okay? 20 years before this, he predicted the world would end on September 4th or 6th in 1994. I mean, just to split the difference, you know? But he also wasn't the first person to predict this. In 500 AD, a church leader in Rome predicted the world would end. The French bishop, Gregory of Tours, predicted the world would end somewhere between 799 and 806. Martin Luther predicted that the world would end no later than 1600. Christopher Columbus predicted it would be 1658. John Wesley, who started the Methodist Church, thought it would be no later than 1836. If you were alive in 1976, then you watched the 700 Club maybe and saw Pat Robertson predict that the world would end in 1976. In the New Testament, the book of 1 Thessalonians was written 20 to 30 years after Jesus returned to heaven. And everybody in the Thessalonica church thought that Jesus would return in their lifetime, so they quit their jobs, they stopped doing things. And Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to say, stop 
not doing anything and live your life. Get back to work. You don't know when Jesus is going to come. The whole book of 1 Thessalonians is about that. In 1988, someone even wrote a book, The 88 Reasons Jesus Will Return in 1988. They had a sequel that came out in 1992. And here's why I say all that. I meet a lot of followers of Jesus right now who say, Josh, we've got to be living in the end times. We've got to be living in the end times. The world can't get any worse than this. Josh, it just can't get any worse than this. Now, here's the thing. You and I might be living in the end times. And the world maybe can't get any worse than this. But if you think that, you are just like every other follower of Jesus who have lived for the last 2,000 years. And the world could end at any time. Jesus could return at any moment and bring heaven to earth and right all the wrongs. It could happen at any moment. It could break through the sky in this moment. And the world may also spin on for another 2,000 years. So as we go through this, we're going to hold what we think about, the return of Jesus and, and, and the new heavens and new earth. We're going to hold it loosely. We're going to look at what Daniel has to say. We're going to look at how these images bring us hope. Because they do. And we also need to remember, as Jesus said in Mark 13, when his disciples said, hey, how do we know when you're coming back? He says, now concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Okay? So Jesus says, hey, I, I don't even know when I'm coming back. And every Christian since then has been like, I bet I'll figure it out. There's got to be a math equation somewhere. Jesus, I, I got it. <laughs> I'll take care of it, Jesus. But Jesus doesn't even know. He says, only the father knows. Watch, be alert. For you don't know when the time is coming. We don't know when Jesus will return. We don't know when all things will be made new, but we are to live like it could be today. And that's the tension. That's the tension of Advent. And so in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, as Daniel is getting closer to the end of his life, which we'll get to in a couple weeks of why, why these visions are so important at the end of Daniel's life, as we face death and as we face the end, Daniel says this. He says, in my vision at night, I was watching. And suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man and given a human mind. Suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads and it was given dominion. After this, while I was watching the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it and it had 10 horns. And while he was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them. Three of the first horns were uprooted before it, and suddenly in this horn, they were like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. So in this dream, Daniel sees these four beasts. And, and they, they come up out of the sea. Now, this is important because in this culture 2,500 years ago, they, they didn't have GPS, they didn't have the weather channel. You know, they're not able to see the hurricane coming in. The sea is this place of chaos. 
is this place of darkness. They, they had no idea what was underneath it. It was scary. It was unknown. And so as these visions unfold, the beasts come out of this place of just chaos. They come out of this place of fear. And we're getting the sense then of, of what Daniel is experiencing. Because this, these beasts, the, the sea is supposed to give us a sense of the world. And for many of us, this sense of the world, the sea, is, is what we experience right now, this chaos. This, how are we going to get through this? How, how do I get through this fear? And these four beasts come out of it. Notice it says that these four beasts are like things. This imagery is important. One is like a lion with eagle's wings. One is like a bear. It has three ribs in its mouth. One is like a leopard with four wings of a bird. And one has uh, four heads. Terrifying, dreadful. I mean, these are the things that, that our nightmares as kids are made up of. And God is showing them, most historians believe that God is showing Daniel, these are the evidence of the kingdoms of this world. These four kingdoms that, that Daniel has experienced. The Babylonian kingdom, the Medo Persian kingdom, and then one day Greece and Rome. Now, here's the thing. These kingdoms were the superpower of the day. And in Daniel's lifetime, Babylon was conquered by Persia, and then came Rome and Greece. Now, the first question we have to ask is, what did these images mean for Daniel, these beasts? These beasts represent oppression. They represent pain, hardship, exile, pain. And for many of us, that's exactly where we feel like we live. Right now, we feel like we live in pain. We feel like we are stuck underneath power by other people. Our, our world just feels chaotic, right? I mean, all week, I, I just watched... Yeah, I, I, love, I love Twitter. It's one of my favorite social media things. And all week, I just watched everyone posting like, this is the end of Twitter. This is it. This is the end of Twitter. And everyone just said, if I don't see you again on Twitter, you know, have a nice life. I mean, it was like every day people were saying that. And I thought, what a crazy world. Like, we're, we're like predicting the end of a social media thing. And, and like, and as silly as that sounds, that, that, I feel like that's just emblematic of our lives. We're just kind of looking around going, man, I wonder when this is just going to be end. When is our friendship going to end? When is this thing going to end? The moment something feels really too good to be true, what do you think? Oh, it's just going to get bad really soon. Got to watch out. You know, if, if it's really good right now, bad is coming. But here's the other thing, too, to remember. We wonder, how, what is God going to do about these kingdoms? What does he answer? And he, and he answers in verse 9. He says, as I kept watching, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like a whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened and the books were open. I watched them because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one, like a son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And so what God does is he answers Daniel, but in a really surprising way. He says, Daniel, here are these kingdoms, these horrific, brutal kingdoms, but they won't last. They won't last. The pain, the oppression, the chaos, it won't last. And it says that the ancient of days took his seat on the throne. And this is a picture of God the Father seated on his throne, sending the Son. We're told that his hair is white, his throne was flames. See, this is important because when we see flames in Scripture, it carries this image of judgment and refinement often. These are two main images of flames, of judgment and refinement. And the Son of Man brings this judgment then. Now, we know in the New Testament that the Son of Man refers to Jesus. When Jesus was asked by the religious leaders who he was, he said, I'm the Son of Man. And so the images that we get then are this image of how Jesus brings his judgment. Now, depending on your church background, you have probably been told and taught that the judgment of Jesus is a horrible thing. But the judgment of Jesus for those of us who are in Christ is a comfort. The judgment of Jesus is when Jesus rights all the wrongs of the world. The judgment of Jesus for those of us in Christ is this comfort that it is now done. It's done. The judgment of Jesus means that there is now no, there is no no more pain, no more war, no more death, no more cancer, no more addiction, no more betrayal, no more aches and pains and hurts and pills, no more. That's what the judgment of Jesus means. It is a comfort that Jesus is now come. And the son of man comes. See, when God tells Daniel this vision, when he gives him this vision, this is his answer to what do I do with this chaos and pain? And he says, these kingdoms, Daniel, they're not going to last forever. In fact, in Daniel's lifetime, he saw the Babylonian empire and kingdom destroyed. And then the Persian empire came. And then that fell. And Greece and Rome and on and on. And if you, if you remember in your history class, kingdoms that no longer exist, names of towns and countries that no longer appear on a map. And this is a reminder that the thing that we are staring at right now, wondering how do I get through, God says that will not last forever. It feels like it will. But one day, your boss will come and go. But God's kingdom will last forever. Your life, my life, will come and go. But God's kingdom will last forever. The Democratic Party, the Republican Party, will come and go. But God's kingdom will last forever. Here's how I know. There were were political parties that don't exist anymore. Why? Because they come and go. And so when Daniel sits there and says, what do I do with these beasts? What do I do with these kingdoms? And God says, I'm over these kingdoms. These kingdoms answer to me. 
These kingdoms can do nothing on their own. This kingdom is horrible and horrific, but it will not last forever. So in your life, what is the thing that you're facing that feels like it will last forever, but won't? See, we long for the kingdom. And we wonder, too, like, how, how, do, how does this play out? And this is a really hard, confusing thing, and this is what we're going to spend the weeks talking about. But the answer to understand the kingdom of God is in a phrase of already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. And what that means is that the kingdom of God is partly present and partly future. Many of its blessings are here to be enjoyed now, but many of them are not yet here. Some of its power is available now, but not all of it. Some of the curse and misery of this old age can be overcome now by the presence of the kingdom, but some of it cannot be. The decisive battle, this is important, the decisive battle against sin and Satan and sickness and death has been fought and won by the king in his death and resurrection, but the war is not over. And this is what Advent is. Advent is the war in between. Sin must be fought, Satan must be resisted, sickness must be prayed over and groaned under, and death must be endured until the second coming of King Jesus. And while your vision and your fears, and maybe mine, are not the beast that Daniel imagined, they are the things that Daniel faced. And so what is it in your life as we enter into this Advent season that you are struggling to trust God with? What is it in your life that you're struggling to believe that God has power over? Is it a relationship? Is it finances? Is it a health situation? Is there something in your life, some, some sin pattern that you think, I, I just don't know if God can free me from this. I don't know if God can take me out of this. Is it somebody that you're going to see this week? See, the message of Daniel 7 as we start this series is that it will come and go but the kingdom of God lasts forever. And the thing that you and I are facing, the thing that you and I are just in a heartache about because we don't know how that could even happen. How can I even get through this? I remember I got a text from a friend this past week who is, just fell back into some really destructive patterns and I just thought, why, how, how long? And if that's you, if you're in that spot, that's what Advent is. Advent is the how long, how come, why this now? And so as we enter into this Advent season, we want to take moments throughout this series 
We're going to have moments where we read Scripture together to remind us of the hope to come. And we're going to sing a song today as we close about the goodness of God. Because what I find interesting in Daniel 7 is that God does not really answer Daniel's questions. He just gives him a vision. But he does say, and this is our hope, this is what we cling to in Advent, is Daniel, I am over that king. And in your life, God is more powerful than your cancer. God is more powerful than your broken relationship. God is more powerful than your body that is breaking down. God is more powerful than the anxiety and stress that you feel. God is more powerful than the hopelessness you carry. God is more powerful than whatever it is that kept you up last night. Because it will come and go. But there is one king that remains. And so as we close, we're going to sing together. We're going to have some of our prayer team down front here to pray with you. If there's something you're walking through today that you just would like some prayer for after this song, they'll be down front here to pray with you. And maybe for you, maybe you're in a place where it's hard to sing about the goodness of God. And that's okay. Some, some days it's really hard to sing about the goodness of God. Someday it's really hard to believe that God is good. And so if that's you, if you're just in a place where you just think, hey, you know, Josh, I, just, I don't really want to sing about the goodness of God. In this moment as we sing this, I want to encourage you to just, to just listen. Maybe for you it's just saying, God, I need you to remind me that you're good. I need you to remind me that you are actually more powerful than the thing I'm facing. And as we sing, our, our prayer is just that it will wash over you and that the Spirit will remind you that what you're facing is not more powerful than God's kingdom. And so let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we can trust you. I thank you that you are good. And God, I pray that as we um, as we navigate our world, God, I know in our church right now there is just there are a lot of requests that we bring to you each week of hurt, searching, disillusionment. There's a lot of fears that we carry. There's a lot of sickness that we carry, a lot of aches and pains, a lot of fears as we scroll through the news. And so, God, we bring them to you. We bring them to you. We know that they won't last, but they feel like they're going to last forever, and they feel pretty insurmountable sometimes. 
And so, God, as we start into this Advent season and prepare our hearts for this time, we, we just ask, remind us, show us each week, each day that you are good, that you are more powerful than everything we are facing and everything we will face. In your name, amen.